Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. I'm not sure that I can focus on a lot else at the moment. That's just maybe because I'm a Brit. Okay, um, what's going on at the moment? Um, I mean, that's uh, too big of a question for my, that's above my pay grade, to be honest with you. Hey everyone, welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And what you just heard was a snippet of the commentary that we recorded at the FT's Festival of Finance a couple of weeks ago in London. Producer and editor Amy Keane asked the participants, what else? In other words, what might we all be missing with so much attention focused on Brexit? On today's show, we're going to play the remaining answers in our first segment. And then after that, we're going to play a quick game of overrated or underrated with economist and voracious cultural infovore Tyler Cowen, where we give Tyler a topic and he tells us if society is underrating or overrating it. And then finally, for our last segment, I'll be joined by this week's guest host, the FT's investigations correspondent, Kara Scannell, and we are going to discuss Jamie Dimon's smarmy and self-congratulatory op-ed in the New York Times, where he vigorously pats himself on the back for giving J.P. Morgan's lower-paid employees a raise because he says it's the, quote, right thing to do. But why did he really bump their salaries? And Kara is with me now in the studio. Kara, welcome to the show. Hey, Cardiff. Great to be here. So here's where I want to start. You have one of the coolest job titles, I think, at the FT, investigations correspondent. You would agree with that, right? Yep, I do. Okay, so I want to talk about the nature of investigative journalism, because I have a theory that the idea of investigative journalism was kind of ruined by like Bob Woodward and all the president's men and the idea that investigative work means meeting like sketchy people in parking lots and things like that. Actually, I think the work is a little bit different and more ennobling in a way. It's like really hard work. It's really, in some cases, tedious work. It's grinding work. Is that right? I'm nodding. Yes. Yes. That's all true. (laughs) So uh, talk about the difference between like this perception and the reality of how you go about your work. I mean, you can always have a case where you, you know, feel that drama of a Woodward and Bernstein moment where you do have to meet someone you know, who will only meet you in person, who will only give you the documents in person. I mean, I once was doing a story and someone met me um, in like a public cafeteria, handed me a New York Times. Inside the New York Times were some internal documents that I wanted. Yeah. Um, I mean, that doesn't happen every day. That happened once. But that's kind of the high drama moments of it. The rest of the time, you are looking at corporate filings. You're looking at state and corporation records. You're dialing people sometimes just through cold calls, trying, hoping someone of the 20 people you call will call you back. Right. Awesome. You excited about today's show? I'm super excited about today's show. (laughs) All right. Let's get on to that first segment. What else is lurking out there besides Brexit that we should all be paying attention to? I'm Francis Coppola. I'm a blogger and Twitterer extraordinaire. Attacks on the independence of central banks. And I was thinking particularly about India and uh, Raghun Rajan, 
being forced out effectively on political grounds and also the attacks on Mark Carney at the Bank of England, um, both of which, both of those are political attacks basically aimed at undermining the independence of the central bank in each case. And that's very worrying. The central banks, we don't want them to cooperate with fiscal authorities, but we don't want them to be pushed around by politicians. So that's actually a very concerning thing for me. Felix Salmon from Fusion and Charles Kenny from the Centre for Global Development. And we are concentrating on the Andes, which no one seems to be concentrating on. But if you think that Britain is falling into the sea, just look at Venezuela. That is a true humanitarian catastrophe which is being massively undercovered and is going to have global implications and repercussions for many, many years to come. On the plus side, Colombia has ended a civil war that's been going on for decades, and it's a sign of growing global peace. There is hope, people. There is hope. In half of the Andes. <laughs> I'm Robert Shrimsley. I'm the editor of FT.com. I think one of the things that people should be certainly alive to and worried about is the fate of Italian banks and the possibility that the Atlas Fund, which exists to rescue them, is almost depleted, certainly more than half depleted, and that the nature of Italian banks at the moment is that depositors have been bailed in to these banks. They were persuaded to take bonds in the banks, and if they start failing, which is a very serious possibility, that ordinary retail depositors are going to lose a lot of money. That creates quite a serious crisis for the Italian government. So I think we should worry about Italian banks, and that's a major knock-on effect for the whole of the Eurozone. My name is Tapiwa Manjengwa. I'm a management consultant with a financial services consulting firm in London called Capco. So I think uh, clearly the US elections are a uh, big consideration. Um, what will happen there and who will end up being the president is a very, very big uh, question. What that means for sort of geopolitical risk uh, in terms of stability across you know, Europe, how our relationship will be. If, I'm going to make it obvious, if it's Donald Trump, what that means for the rest of the world. I think that could be quite significant. Hi, I'm Toby Nangle from Columbia Threadneedle. I'm a fund manager there. If you were to ask me a couple of weeks ago what was going to be important here, I would have thought that someone might have been talking about Donald Trump. Uh, the prospective election of a large-scale populist uh, candidate in the States might be of some interest. In addition, I mean, the, the dollar strength that you saw in the wake of Brexit has led to Chinese renminbi weakness. The last time that happened, uh, we saw all sorts of uh, pressures on emerging markets. Uh, and actually, the, you know, the eye's been off the ball on as far as emerging markets have been concerned. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to see uh, in the wake of the PBOC saying they'd be happy for weakness up to 6.8, which is a big, big deal, uh, really what comes next on that. So I'm George Perks. I'm a macro strategist at Bespoke Investment Group. So I think the thing that Brexit is obscuring is more conversation about tightness in the U.S. labor market. I do not think the U.S. labor market gets enough credit for being tight. I think wages are accelerating dramatically. Um, right now, the top quartile of wage growth earners in the Atlanta Fed's median wage tracker, they have, are getting higher raises than they got during the peak of the last cycle and are, are closing in on where they were at the end of the 1990s cycle. Low-end wages are, are, are similarly productive in terms of the distribution um, within that tracker. Compensation share of GDP is rising very quickly. Um, there is a lot of evidence that the U.S. labor market is quite tight. And I don't think that the Brexit conversation is being helpful in um, focusing on that and the consequences for that for monetary policy and for uh, the global economy in general, because I think it's quite significant.
Uh, so I'm George Magnus. I'm an associate at the uh, China Centre at Oxford University and a senior advisor to UBS. I'm not sure that I can focus on a lot else at the moment. That's just maybe because I'm a Brit. Um, but it is, uh, you know, it is an existential thing for us and for Europe. And uh, clearly, the you know, it has knock-on implications for um, the Western world because elections in the United States later this year, elections in France and Germany in 2017, um, there may be current, you know, recurrent sort of issues and narratives from the, the Brexit debate in the United Kingdom, which have implications for, for those countries too. And I think that's kind of what I'm worried about. For our next segment, I spoke to economist Tyler Cowen, who was in attendance at Camp Alphaville. Tyler likes to play a game of overrated or underrated with his guests on his own podcast called Conversations with Tyler, and we thought it would be fun to turn it around on him, and he was game for it. Here it is. Overrated or underrated, the East Asian economic model. The East Asian economic model is underrated for when it worked, but it's no longer possible. We're living in a world of premature deindustrialization, where it's simply no longer the case that you can employ so many people in manufacturing or export-led growth. So that model is over forever. We underappreciate how good it once was, but we're wrong to think it might continue. Not confident that a non-manufacturing version of the East Asian economic model might work for some developing countries. Service sector jobs seem fundamentally different from manufacturing jobs. The employer invests less in you, productivity growth is slower, they seem to be more transient. So all the service sector jobs we've seen as a whole don't seem able to replicate that earlier model. Got it. Overrated or underrated? Hitchcock movies. Hitchcock movies today are underrated. When I was growing up, they were properly rated. Young people forget them. They haven't quite become iconic in the sense that everyone is expected to watch them. But there are at least 20, which are just dynamite, blockbuster, excellent, amazingly good. Uh, your favorite? My favorite. At times, it's Rope. Uh, let's not say... Vertigo, not Psycho. Vertigo uh, not is Rear the window. most beautiful. Psycho is definitely overrated. Uh, Rear Window is a good candidate for okay. best, yeah. Indian food in London. Way overrated at the median restaurant, but the top five or six places are underrated. So if you look at Trishna or Amaya, the very best places, they're way better than anything in the United States. They're underrated, but your median curry house just somewhere, it's bad food, you might as well go to McDonald's. Okay. Jazz. Jazz is making a comeback in the United States because of Kamasi Washington. It's been underrated for a long time. We're now starting to get back to a world where it's properly rated. Young people don't listen to it. It's fallen off the charts in terms of sales. But that's exactly why it's gotten better, because you only do it if you love it unless the quality goes up again. The TV renaissance. The TV renaissance is actually a little bit overrated. It is wonderful, and TV's the best it's ever been, but if you ask how many of those shows will we go back and watch 20 years from now, I don't think it's very many. So I'll say it's a bit overrated relative to older classic movies. Uh, one show that's currently running that you think you will be listening to or re-watching in 20 years. I will, at some point in my life, rewatch the first season of Battlestar Galactica and all of the seasons of The Sopranos. The Americans? Underrated. The people who watch it rate it properly. I think two-thirds of the episodes are excellent. 
Uh, it, it's clunky at times, has a lot of flaws. I hate how they have people speaking with these awful Russian accents, <laughs> and I'm afraid they're going to ruin it. They need to be totally brutal and start killing off some more main characters. <laughs> Mostly, I love it. Uh, Marvel movies. Overrated. None of them are any good. Marvel isn't any good. Uh, there's too many characters. They proliferate. They have weird, arbitrary powers. They're tentpole franchises. They're the death of cinema as we know it, circa 2016. The sooner they go away, the better. Universal basic income. Amongst intellectuals, it's now overrated. First, it would choke off immigration, which helps people more. Second, voters just hate the idea of the guy next door getting something for not working, so it will never happen. Third, if we did it, it would be a weird, inefficient add-on and not a replacement for the bad policies we have. So the idea does make a lot of sense in some ways, but right now it's become overrated by the intellectual class. An argument then also that if it chokes off immigration, it might even increase inequality rather than lessen it. It's likely to increase inequality at the global level. That's absolutely right. Okay. Replication in the social sciences. It's becoming a bit overrated. It is true you can't trust most articles in peer-reviewed journals. The dirty little secret is people already don't trust them. So we're pretending as if the research is already legitimate and needs to be struck down in some way. But the world has done its own kind of replication. It's called replication by ignoring what you wrote. Uh, aren't people a little too quick to think also that if something isn't immediately replicated, that it's necessarily wrong? Correct. Replication is no more of a final test than the original piece was. So I think we should do more of it. It's good. It's important. But now by the intellectual class, a little bit overrated. Okay. Uh, this one's a little more complicated. Citing the sunk cost fallacy in decision-making. Sunk costs are never really sunk. Culture is a sunk cost in a sense. Culture rules the world. So economists who say, oh, that's a sunk cost, I'm going to dismiss it, that's usually a mistake. And doing that is amongst economists overrated. But most normal people, when they use common sense, they more or less get it right and know that you shouldn't dismiss sunk costs. Uh, you can answer this last one along any dimension you like. Uber. Uber is a little bit overrated, I think. It deserves to be very highly rated. It's a great company. It's a great idea. But a lot of what Uber is doing is subsidizing alcohol. And to me, that's a negative rather than a positive. Uh, the rest of it's mostly good. Great for old people. Makes us more mobile. But I'll say a little bit overrated. Tyler Cowan, thanks so much, man. My pleasure. <laughs> And we are back in the New York studios, and I am joined by co-host Kara Scannell. Kara, are you ready to dissect Jamie Dimon's op-ed? Oh, yeah, Cardiff. I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. This week in the New York Times, Jamie Dimon, CEO of JPMorgan Chase, published an op-ed in which he essentially was bragging about the pay raise that he's giving to JPMorgan's lower-paid employees, Okay. Now, the raises are substantial, right? And it's a good thing that they're happening. I think we can all be happy about this. The lowest paid of JP Morgan's employees right now make about $10.15 an hour. Um, they are going to get a pay bump to between $12 an hour and up to $16.50 an hour in the course of the next three years, depending on geographical differences and things like that. Okay. That's all great. I don't have any problem with that. What I have a problem with is hypocrisy, okay? Jamie Dimon in the op-ed said that he was giving them a raise because it was, quote, the right 
thing to do because income inequality has been a problem in the US because a lot of Americans have been left out of a prospering economy, okay? That was his justification for it. Unfortunately, just a few months ago, his very own chief of consumer and community banking put out a presentation in which essentially the bank was bragging about how many fewer staffers it has, how many fewer bank tellers, all right? Specifically, 12,000 fewer transaction staffers between uh, the year 2012 and the year 2015, all right? Now, it's a little bit weird for Jamie Dimon to be saying that the reason he's giving his employees a raise, okay, is because he cares so much about them sharing in the outcomes, when at the same time, he's been letting go so many of those very same kinds of employees. And I want to be clear about something. I'm not criticizing layoffs, right? I'm certainly not criticizing technological progress. A lot of those bank tellers have been let go precisely because their jobs have been automated away, okay? That's obviously a terribly difficult thing to deal with for the individuals who are let go, and we should all have sympathy for them and hope that they get other jobs. But at the same time, that's just the nature of the economy. There's economic churn, okay? My problem, again, is with the inconsistency there, the hypocrisy. What do you think? Is your problem because Jamie Dimon is paid so much? No, no, right? My issue isn't the discrepancy between how much Jamie Dimon makes and how little uh, these bank staffers make, okay? My problem is that he's saying that the reason he's giving them a raise is not because the labor market is tightening and because these people deserve higher compensation for their labor, which is why I think he's giving them a raise, okay? He's saying it because it's the right thing to do, right? Essentially, he's saying we are throwing these guys a bone because we're going to help combat income inequality. And I think that's bogus, right? I think he's giving them a raise because it's a sound business decision to give them a raise. And I think it should also be noted um, that there's kind of an interesting uh, recent history in terms of bank teller jobs, right? Uh, A lot of people thought that the rise of ATMs and more sophisticated ATMs in particular would reduce the number of bank teller jobs. That actually didn't happen over the last couple of decades. Actually, it led to an increase in the number of bank teller jobs because essentially it became way cheaper to run a bank branch, right? So you actually needed more people to work in these higher number of bank branches, right? But that started to flatten out. And at this point, the automation technology is becoming so good that it looks like the number of bank teller jobs are going to decline. And again, that's okay. That's how things happen, right? That's that's something that happens across a lot of different industries, okay? Jobs, especially routine jobs, get automated away, okay? And bank teller jobs are simply one of those jobs. But the, it also means that the workers who still work at these retail branches are probably doing more sophisticated work. They're probably doing work that requires more interpersonal skills. They're helping other people with more complicated transactions, The bank's customers, they might in some cases be helping customers who can't figure out the ATMs or whatever to use them. In other words, they're becoming more productive on average, and that means they deserve higher pay. So that makes this a good business decision, which again, I'm not criticizing the decision. I think it's wonderful. The economy needs more wage growth and more wage-led inflation. That's exactly what it needs. I'm criticizing the justification he used for it, which I found to be kind of smarmy and self-congratulatory. Do we know, based on that past presentation and whatever else um, the bank has disclosed, what the net effect of that is, given the amount of layoffs that they've had or just, um, you know, attrition jobs and tellers and what the bank is going to be cost as a result of this increase? 
I'm not totally sure, but I've seen some back of the envelope calculations, right? It looks like this will probably increase bank costs by somewhere around 100 million bucks a year, right? That again is a very loose estimate. That's not nothing for the people who are getting the raise, okay? That's actually pretty good. In the most optimistic scenario that Jamie Dimon laid out, where a worker goes from getting ten fifteen an hour to sixteen fifty an hour over three years, that's roughly the equivalent of an annualized compounded seventeen percent raise, right? Each year, that's pretty good, right? That's great. That said, a hundred million bucks for uh, J.P. Morgan isn't that much money. I mean, it's a little more than a rounding error, but it's still a fairly fairly trivial sum of money. And also worth remembering that Jamie Dimon himself last year made about twenty seven million bucks, which was, by the way a 35% increase on his compensation the prior year. So his raise is still going to be better than their raise by an order of two. I mean, what's interesting on this is, you know, Diamond announces this through an op-ed. He's not the first bank to increase wages. Amalgamated Bank, which is one of the oldest union-owned banks in the country, uh, announced a a 15% minimum wage back in August. And you mean $15? $15. Yeah, I'm sorry. $15 minimum wage back in August. It's not surprising coming from Algamated since the union groups are, have been organizing a nationwide effort to raise the minimum wage to $15. But you know, I don't know that Amalgamated's got that much attention, but at the time and also earlier this week when Diamond penned his op-ed, Amalgamated came out and said, we'd like to see Citigroup and Goldman do this. We want other banks to step up and increase the minimum wage. But they never, I don't believe they announced theirs in an op-ed. It's an interesting <laughs> uh, contrast. Right. Uh, I think they. I think something that uh, their chief said was something along the lines of, I'm glad JP Morgan is following our lead, right? Um, right. But this is a this is a great point that Amalgamated went to fifteen bucks earlier. They say that all the other banks should do the same thing. Presumably, Jamie Dimon would like that too because he doesn't want to be the only bank uh, with higher labor costs, right? Who knows? Uh, because what you just said reminded me of something else, right? Which is the move to fifteen itself is going to be implemented in some states, and in that sense. JP Morgan is just getting a little bit ahead of the curve, right? Exactly. They're racing to 15 exactly. First. I mean, it's still a nationwide effort, which is, uh, you know, has not been adopted on a national level. But New York State and California in April both signed into law a statewide $15 minimum wage. That goes into effect in both states in 2022. I think it takes J- a while. It takes a long time. And I think JP Morgan said theirs will go into effect by 2019. So they're um, going to have a couple of years lead on, on the rest of the states. But I mean, the the momentum is heading in that direction. So it maybe it's not too much of a of a leap for him to make this move now. Right. Especially since, uh, at least in these relevant states, everybody else is going to have to eventually anyways. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I, I guess I, what I thought was that the JP Morgan raise at least does neatly encapsulate a few other broader economic trends. You know, we have seen finally, after years of sluggishness in the last couple of years only, a steadily rising path for wage growth, right? It's not accelerating at anything like it was prior to the crisis, right? It's somewhere between 2 and 3%, but that's still better than hovering around 2% as it was until about 2013, 2014, right? That's a genuinely positive trend, right? That's good. The automation of routine tasks, leaving behind those with a slightly higher skill set, and therefore they get paid a little more money, 
right? That's sort of encapsulated into this story. And also the idea that eventually with a tighter labor market, and we definitely have a tighter labor market now than we did a couple of years ago, right? It's not totally tight, but it's tighter. Also gives workers a little bit more bargaining power. And so in that sense, this might have just been a very smart play on Jamie Dimon's part to get ahead of that and say, well, eventually we're going to have to give them raises anyways. We do it now. And so we look good. That said, my concern is not the JP Morgan PR machine, right? My concern is figuring out exactly what's going on and to act like this is some beneficent thing on behalf of, you know, bank CEOs towards like their lower paid employees, like something they're bestowing on them as a gift, they're throwing them a bone is ludicrous to me. And so overall, I think it's worth piercing that illusion at least a little bit and on the margins. I mean, I think it's, you know, who would have really thought that the customer service person that you're dealing with on the phone when you've got a problem with your bank account or when your account may have been hacked and, you know, is really dealing with you on some sensitive issues is making the minimum wage or, you know, just about the minimum wage. Right. So maybe it's about time that the the bank with all of its profits um, throws a little more to people who are actually the ones interfacing with most of their customers on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's a good point. I should note that J.P. Morgan's own internal minimum wage is a few bucks higher than the national average, but it's also the case that you want to know that the people that you're dealing with sometimes on the phone or at the bank, you might be discussing some sensitive issues with them. You want to know that they're paid a little bit more than that minimum, sure. Right. And if they're helping you... you know, set up your accounts and and get yourself started maybe with a mortgage, introducing you to people. It's really, you know, an important customer-facing relationship for the bank. Indeed. Well, I'm expecting a little bit of pushback for this segment, to be quite honest with you. But we are happy to hear what our listeners have to say. So definitely give us a call and get in touch. Kara, it's time for you and I to do our long-form recommendations. What do you (laughs) recommend? Wait to talk about this. Uh, What are you recommending to our listeners? Uh, So I had read this article called Shadow Doctors in The New Yorker um, from about two weeks ago, written by Ben Taub. It is a really amazing story, and I don't use that word lightly. He basically writes a profile of this surgeon, David Knott, who does these. He's based in the UK. He's a London-based doctor. He goes into war fields. He He has spent time in Aleppo training doctors there, training people who are training to be doctors, how to do war zone surgery, how to save someone without having any of the tools. I mean, they've set up hospitals in these war zones in people's homes. And um, and they've even treated the rebels who are, who are, you know, trying to kill them. And the story is so revealing because it just really explains and kind of puts you to see how dire the situation on the ground is. Most of the doctors you know, or have been run out of town. There's actually been targeted attacks on hospitals. But these people just, you know, who don't leave the country, you know, are there and they're trying to save themselves by learning these surgical techniques. And sometimes it's even by, you know, like a, a, a email that they, they see and they get copies of a textbook that he's sharing with them, um, you know, remotely. But it's it's just such a fascinating look into what it's really like in a war zone, because I think people sometimes forget how are people treated sure. medically when they're there. And amidst like this incredibly tragic scenario all around them, I guess it's also kind of a testament to how people can adapt, right? You said that they were learning on the fly via YouTube videos. They probably don't have great equipment nearby either. They're probably kind of coming up with like a kind of a, a kind of a technology hack themselves to try and perform these surgeries. I haven't read the piece, but that sounds great. It's a, it's a great one. I definitely recommend it. Okay. What's yours? My recommendation is 
episode one of season two of Invisibilia, which is this marvelous NPR podcast hosted by Elise Spiegel, Lulu Miller, and Hannah Rosen. It's all about like the hidden processes of the mind and the things that happen in the world that we don't necessarily see, but that still influence the ways in which we behave, right? And in this episode, it's called The New Norm. Hannah Rosen goes on to like this big time oil rig to talk to like these tough guys who work on there to see what happened to them when they started kind of getting in touch with like their emotions. And I thought that this would just be kind of one of these touchy feely types of things about like tough guys who now get in touch with, you know, uh, their softer sides and how that improves their relationships and things like that. And there is some of that in there, but it also goes in surprising and revealing directions. And I can't really say more without ruining some of the plot twists, but it is a really wonderful podcast. And this episode in particular is a great place to start. Oh, come on. You can't give me a little hint. <laughs> I can't. I'm sorry. No, you should listen to it. Honestly, it's fantastic. And now that you're a podcast host yourself, I think you need to start listening to other podcasts. It's on my yeah. list. I mean, after this one. Okay. And after our other one, Alpha Chatterbox, then listen to this one. Right. Okay. Third, third place. <laughs> exactly. I'm on it. <laughs> Thanks to our listeners, everybody. Thanks to Kara for guest hosting this week. She'll be back next week as well. Please give us a call at 917-551-5012. And we in particular would like to hear what you think we should be covering besides Brexit. We asked everybody at the Festival of Finance a couple of weeks ago, but we're curious to know your thoughts. Send us an email at alphachat at ft.com. You can tweet us. Kara is at Kara Scannell. That's two N's and two L's. I'm at Cardiff Garcia. Leave us a review. Rate the show on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. And you can get show notes at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. Amy Keene is perennially underrated. Okay. And she doesn't even know it. She's amazing. Thanks for everything, Amy, our producer and editor. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you again here next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.